Welcome to the Sydney Ideas Lecture Series at the University of Sydney in co-production with the Vivid Ideas uh, Series. I'm Hugh Darren White. I'm the uh, director of the new uh, Centre for Translational Data Science uh, at the University of Sydney. And it's my pleasure to be here this evening uh, to tell you a little bit about the future of science and the future of data science. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of this country. Now, the format this evening is as follows. I'm going to sort of just give you a very brief overview, uh, overview of where data science is going. And then I've brought along four very, very eminent scientists and data scientists to give you an insight into how this is currently being applied in areas from physical science to life science uh, to social science. And then we're going to have a question and answer session where you can feel free to ask of these scientists where they think the future is going. And please, ask hard questions. Ask where we're going to take this in the future and what it means for our lives. So we are at a tipping point in science. There is an increasing volume and variety of information that's available to all scientists, geologists, health scientists, social scientists, you name it, an enormous amount of data. But in addition, because of computing, the changes in computing, because of our understanding about things like statistics, we are at a tipping point in terms of the kinds of methods and algorithms that we can apply to that data to get new, meaningful insights, and in particular, to do science things, that is to take the data, to build models, to predict the future, and with those predictions, come up with hypotheses about scientists, science that can be actually tested. And that really is the transformation that's happening in data around the world. It is not Google and Facebook and how much we can use our data to sell you things. It's about the fact that science will be changing, data science will be changing both the society that we live in and the kind of science that we do in future. Now, the Center for Translational Data Science at the University of Sydney has a kind of unique mission. It's a very horizontal endeavor in the sense that uh, there are lots and lots of data scientists and statisticians, but we walk at work across all six faculties uh, in the university trying to apply and make best use of data science technologies. Whether it's in the humanities, whether it's in medicine or business or any other area, we really want to apply and solve problems in these domains. And the way that we're actually set up is that rather than coming up with algorithms, what we actually do is we focus on problems. We focus on problems particularly in physical, life, and social sciences. And through that, what we're really aiming to do is to learn, that is to use machines to learn how to discover. That's kind of the first fundamental thing that we're trying to do within the center. What we do from that is we kind of take the ideas that are generated in these areas and generalize them. So we understand new tools with which we can apply to do discovery. We develop new techniques to visualize information so that scientists can understand and build a narrative of what it is they're doing in their discovery. And finally, we're very, very careful about the way we manage data. The fact that much data is private, it's linked to individuals, or that it may be involved with companies or other endeavors. And we need to understand how to manipulate, store, and process large volumes of data. And we call this learning to generalize. That is, we take specific problems and we understand how to apply them to other domains that we might be interested in. And through that, we're expecting and we hope we will build large amounts of human capacity, training people and new scientists to use these data science techniques to actually change the way that we do science and what we do in society in the future.
And that really is the basis on which the Centre for Translational Data Science works. Now this evening, what we're really going to do is to pick out three exemplars of what we, what we endeavour to achieve. We have about 30, nearly 40 projects across the university now in everything from uh, linguistics to mental health. Uh, and what we're actually going to do is just pick out three of those and give you a feeling for what data science is doing. And I'm going to just do a one-page kind of summary of what you're going to hear a little bit later. Uh, geology is actually one of my favourite subjects. Uh, anyone who knows me knows that I have a big rock collection in my lab. Uh, I've been heavily involved in the mining industry over the years. And I'm very interested in mineral discovery and indeed why the earth is the way that it is. And there are enormous interesting data problems in this area. We have lots of very different types of information, seismic, gravity, magnetotellurics, things you've probably never even heard of, in fact. But we take lots of interesting measurements. And we have to make up an inference which tries to understand the geology, the space in which we live, and, and try and understand what that actually means in terms of the way that the Earth has evolved. And we'll hear a lot more about this this evening. One big project that we're involved in is the so-called Uncover Project. And if you look at that picture of Australia there, that, that kind of explains it in one picture. That's a picture of the surface geology of Australia. And where it's colourful, we kind of know what's on the surface. Uh, and where it's not colourful, where it's kind of grey and green, we don't know what's on the surface. And if you ever fly to England from Sydney, you'll know that you spend a lot of time flying over things that just look empty and sandy. That's the green bits that you see over there. Okay? The second thing you will notice is that all the little dots there, those are the mines in Australia. And you will notice something else, that all the mines are where we know what's on the surface. And there are no mines where we know there's nothing under, what we do not know what's underneath. And so the big challenge, the uncover challenge, is to actually get all of this data together and try and work out what there is under the 80% of Australia that we don't know what there is at the moment. This is a really interesting data science problem. It would transform the way that geology is done. It would transform the economics of this country. A second interesting example is around human disease, particularly what we think of as comorbidities around obesity, diabetes and heart disease. These are the ones that are really, I think, threatening, threatening the most in, in, in the types of societies that we live. Uh, obesity alone costs about $21 million a year in Australia, just to give you an idea of the impact. Now, the information in this case comes from lots of sources. It comes from understanding cell biology. So you can see an example up there where we're actually taking measurements using a mass spectrometer to figure out what kinds of proteins operate in what cells at what different timings and so on. And from that, figure out basically how those cells operate. And once they operate, how that operation can be disrupted. All right? And those are themselves underpinned by other information about things like the biome, that is the bacteria that we have in our gut, and also the things that we eat and the environment that we live in. And what we're trying to work towards is really an understanding of predictive precision health and predicted precision guided medicine. So trying to understand how that, all that information predicts how you and your biome, will, your uh, metabolism will behave. And a final example that you'll hear about this evening is really trying to understand social behaviours in general. Okay? We've picked particularly on criminology in one of the areas we're working in, but you're going to hear about a different area tonight. And this is a terrifically interesting area. We spend a lot of money on uh, what are we going to do in terms of uh, perhaps preventing people uh, uh, leading a life of crime or ensuring that they're happy and they're healthy and they're, they're well-employed. And we actually have incredibly little data on what sort of information really makes big social differences. So we have a program here that really tries to understand how you use relatively small amounts of information to make predictions about social impact. What interventions could we actually have that would really make a difference in our society? 
So you can see here impacts in physical, in life, and in social science. And data can change our understanding of all these different areas. And as I said at the beginning, the big science thing when you're in information technology or in statistics is how all of those things come together. How can we change the way discovery is done? Turns out there are common themes. There are common themes like how do you use very diverse data and put it all together? How do you deal not with the big data problem, which, but the small data problem? Turns out in science that most problems don't have anywhere near enough information to come up with an unambiguous answer. So you need to understand how you use that. In visualization, how do, you, how do you explain uncertainties? How do you explain the discovery narrative? How do you interact with people in order to really bring these sorts of things together? And finally, again, data. How you manage these large quantities of information. So this evening, I have four very brilliant scientists who are going to talk to you. Uh, we have Professor Dietmar Muller from the School of Geophysics. He's someone I've worked with for a long time because he's in geology and he also likes rocks. Uh, and he's going to tell you the kinds of things that have been happening in geology and the way that data is changing what's going on. Then we have Dr. Sean Humphrey. He works in the same lab that we work with in the new Charles Perkins Center around truly trying to understand cell biology using different types of information, a truly complex and challenging problem. And then we have both Professor Nick Glossier, who's a professor of psychological medicine, and Professor Sally Cripps, who's from our own Center for Translational Data Science, who are going to talk to you about the work that we've been doing in the mental health area and how that has impacts across all of society. So with that, I'm going to hand over to our first speaker, uh, Dietmar Muller, who will tell you about uh, what we're doing in the geology area. Dietmar? Thank you. This is one of my favorite slides um, because it um, exemplifies the vast, the vast difference of observational scales, methods, and the diversity of data that we are faced with in geoscience. We might be collecting data at an outcrop, uh, some sandstones around Bullai, shown on the lower right, or we might uh, be drowning in huge volumes of satellite data. Um, we have the Internet of Things, where a lot of data are collected in real time, or we might go out on a research vessel to collect data. Right? Um, now, the, the, we, have, we have faced... Uh, with a very different type of earth science. Um, most scientists prefer to collect their own data. They, they sort of mistrust data collected by others. Uh, but it turns out that most pressing global challenges involve the amalgamation and analysis of a large variety of data. It's actually a new way of doing science, enabling planet-scale discovery and figuring out how complex, is, uh, how complex processes work over many timescales involves uh, working with other people's data. Uh, now, I want to take you through one particular example, which is the seafloor. It's one of those uh, things in the world of geology that we actually know very little about, and I'm going to try to convince you that we should actually care about the seafloor. Now, the oceans cover about 70% uh, of the surface of the Earth, and they, uh, they are home to the Earth's largest ecosystem, and they're also the largest carbon sink on Earth. Now, there's tiny uh, microscopic organisms that populate uh, the surface uh, of the oceans, the sunlit waters, and when they die, they fall to the seafloor. Now, only 3% of the carbon that is produced uh, at the surface actually makes it to the seafloor, but still, it's the large carbon sink down there. Right? Now, that's not where it ends. Right? This, uh, this uh, uh, marine snow, as it's called, and, and that's made up of these particles that, uh, that sink uh, to the uh, seafloor, 
uh, is um, a large portion of it is made up of microalgae that are called diatoms. Now, not only do they take carbon out of the atmosphere, they also produce at least 25% of the oxygen that we all breathe. That's an interesting point to reflect on. Um, <clears throat> now, how much do we actually know about the seafloor? It turns out, until last year, this was the most up-to-date map of seafloor geology that we had. It was actually hand-contoured over a light table in the 1970s, and you can see that it looks pretty boring. The seafloor looks like a very homogeneous seascape. Right? And uh, now, uh, you can guess that this is not really what it looks like. Right? And, but the question comes up, well, why didn't anybody make a new seafloor map uh, over the last few decades? Now, now, over the last 50 years, more than 200,000 uh, seafloor samples were collected by hundreds and hundreds of research cruises, right? It's a big heterogeneous data set from many individual small projects. We call that a case of the long tail of big dark data. Now this clearly involves data reuse and data mining, right? Which is just the kind of thing that most scientists are loath uh, to do um, because it involves the paradigm shift, the new philosophy, new workflows and new collaborations that we are not used to. And so ultimately, um, it's uh, difficult to teach an old dog new tricks, and that's uh, exemplified by the Labradoodle Nakata here on the lower right-hand side. So, so you can see that he's clearly quite daunted by the task of you know, machine learning. You know? uh, he'd prefer to go back to the couch without computer. You know? So many of us are like that. Right? Um, and so uh, what we did, uh, so this is our big data knowledge discovery applied to the seafloor example in seven easy steps. So the, the first part of it was to form a multidisciplinary team. So I'm a geophysicist, but I don't, I, at the start of this, I didn't know much about machine learning. So we teamed up um, a geologist, a geophysicist, a programmer, and a machine learning expert. We then accessed the uh, dark data, applied quality control, and designed and applied a modern classification scheme um, to, uh, to learn how different types of seafloor sediments are juxtaposed. So then we combined uh, sea surface data with seabed data to gain some new insights into the marine carbon cycle, make a digital grid, publish a paper, and actually uh, publish a virtual globe, uh, which is spinning on the right-hand side. Um, uh, just a few words about uh, what's special about uh, how this uh, new map that I'm going to show you in a minute was created. It actually involves the world of hyperdimensions, and I believe others, uh, for example, Sally will tell you more about that uh, later on. Uh, so what, uh, what we needed to do was to um, uh, use 15,000 samples of seafloor geology that were classified into 13 different types of sediments. And, uh, and so we need to automatically figure out how they are all juxtaposed on the seafloor globally. Right? And of course, these are convoluted boundaries. And uh, if, if we just look at uh, an example of, of two different types of of points that are outlined up here in the upper right. So we, we want to convert those convoluted boundaries into straight planes, into our so-called feature space. Right? So we actually use a, um, a methodology that's called the support vector machine. We're not going to go into the details here. But I want to make the point that they involve the imaginary world of hyperdimensions. And of course, we, we have a hard time involving more dimensions than we are used to. And this was recognized a long uh, time ago, and it is exemplified beautifully uh, in a novel um, by uh, Edwin Abbott, I think no, uh, no relationship with our past prime minister here, 
Um, and so he published this novel called Flatland in 1884, and it describes a two-dimensional world occupied by geometric figures, where women are line segments, while men are polygons with various numbers of sides. You can see this is, doesn't quite correspond to our current view of uh, gender differences, you know, but this was quite some time ago. So the narrator, called A Square, uh, guides the readers uh, through life in two dimensions in this book, of course, who cannot comprehend uh, a world of more dimensions than two. So we are a little bit like that, right? And so we have a hard time imagining uh, higher dimensions, but they are not just a mathematical fantasy at this point. They're an essential part of what makes machine learning software work. Uh, and then there's also, of course, a computer game called Hyperdimension Neptunia, where, which I'm sure uh, some, some of you in the audience uh, who have young kids might be familiar with. Now, this is a juxtaposition here of our old seafloor map and, and the new one. And that we came up with using uh, machine learning and our new uh, compiled data set. Right? And so um, uh, you know, in, uh, one of the journalists who wrote an article about this last year called this a kaleidoscope of diversity compared with the boring uh, seascapes that uh, we saw in the map from the 70s. Right? Um, and so uh, why was this important or useful? So we have, we have actually used this map uh, in the interim uh, in, in another paper where we showed um, that the distribution of these sea uh, sediments very much reflects sea surface oceanographic parameters such as salinity and temperature. Right? And so that means as we are warming up the oceans, the whole carbon cycle uh, uh, and the, the, the way the carbon reservoir that we find at the seabed will uh, uh, form and evolve will change. Because small shifts in these parameters can lead to dramatic variations in the production and deposition of sediments. Um, and uh, well, we can imagine uh, what consequences this might have also for the production of oxygen, perhaps. So we know very little about this. But this map has brought us a step closer uh, to um, reaching this uh, goal to figure out a little bit more about how the world might be changing in the future. And I should acknowledge that the lead author of this work was Adriana Dukievich from the School of Geosciences, who cannot be here uh, today. So this is, again, our spinning globe with our data points and our new interpolated map. Um, now, I want to say a few more words, um, a few closing words about visualizing data science. Now, last week, I accidentally ran across um, uh, an MIT technology review piece that reported that uh, nearly five million figures from scientific papers, over half a million scientific papers, had recently been analyzed. Um, and uh, the surprising result of this analysis was that, that uh, scientific papers that had more illustration, more figures in them, were, had a higher impact and were more successful. Right? And so the authors concluded that, that either visual information improves the clarity of a paper or high-impact papers naturally include new complex ideas that require visual explanation. It's probably a combination of both. Right? Now, uh, we think the visualization um, of these uh, very uh, complex data spaces that we are analyzing uh, is very important to actually bring across uh, the, the messages uh, that are embedded in these data. And I want to um, exemplify this um, by um, some beautiful equations and theorems. We start with Euler's identity that is often cited as the most beautiful equation. And even as non-mathematicians, you can sort of see, well, it's quite simple. It's not very complex. It contains some fundamental uh, variables. Um, uh, and, uh, but most of us would, would have a hard time understanding 
uh, why Stanford professor Keith Devlin said, like a Shakespearean sonnet that captures the very essence of love, or a painting that brings out the beauty of the human form that is far more than just skin deep, Euler's equation reaches down into the very depths of existence. Now, most of us wouldn't look at this equation and come to this conclusion, I, I suppose. Maybe there's some advanced mathematicians in the audience. Uh, now, uh, I uh, work with Euler's rotation theorem on a daily basis. Now, actually, I don't stare at this theorem that's probably just as enigmatic to you as the equation uh, above. I don't stare um, at this theorem uh, every day. Um, but what instead uh, I do is I, I use uh, this theorem to make uh, plate tectonic reconstructions and computer animations. And so this is clearly a much better way to illustrate what Euler's theorem actually means. So we see here the continents as they're moving through geological time, as the ocean floor is evolving with the red hot colors uh, um, uh, denoting very young ocean floor and the older ocean floor being green and, uh, and blue. So just from watching this uh, simple uh, animation, so we have a much better idea of what, um, what, Euler's, uh, theorem, uh, what Euler's theorem means. Um, so we have uh, taken this one step further, and we have created a whole bunch of virtual globes uh, on the cloud-based uh, G-Plates portal. This actually runs on the Amazon cloud, and, uh, and we, have a, uh, we have a brilliant uh, programmer, uh, very fortunate in the Earthwise group called Michael Chin, and he's the, uh, he's the mind behind the G-Plates portal. And so we have, uh, he's created a whole bunch of uh, virtual globes here, one of which is playing on the right-hand side. That's a reconstruction of a digital geology map of, of the world over the last 200 million years. And so you can actually visit this site and play around uh, with this interactively. And we have found this to be a very um, effective way to communicate the results of global um, big data analysis and modeling projects uh, to the public. Right? Um, and so, um, do we know whether this is working? It's definitely working. This is one of our most high-impact and most vivid technologies, one could perhaps say. Uh, this portal is approaching half a million visits over uh, less than one and a half years. It had some international news coverage. You can see even uh, readers of the Daily Mail appreciated uh, this, uh, this portal when it first came out, um, amazingly. Um, it's very widely used in education, and, uh, but only thanks to the awesome Earthwide group, this is not a one-person job, um, then there's uh, something between 20 to 30 postdocs and um, postgraduate students in, involved in making all this happen. Thank you. Okay, so... Um, I'm from uh, the Charles Perkins Center, I mean um, Professor David James's group, um, and we're uh, studying uh, metabolic disease, um, and today I'm just going to give you a, a brief snapshot at, um, we're going to step back a little bit and look at uh, the generation of big data and, and um, some of the, where we've come from and, and where we're going to in the biological sciences. So, um, uh, I think this is a beautiful picture because you know this is our Milky Way, um, and we can all appreciate that there's an awful lot of stars here. There's um, actually a hundred billion stars in our galaxy, um, <clears throat> and this, you know, this is this is a big number. <laughs> and but when we'll, the the Hubble telescope um, has sent, has been sending us back some beautiful images of deep space, 
And um, actually, this is uh, called the deep, deep field view. Um, when the Hubble zooms in on just a tiny patch of apparently dark sky, um, it turns out that there are actually billions um, of galaxies within that patch of sky. And so biological sciences has traditionally, um, I think, lagged behind in, in, in sort of big numbers like this. We, we think biology, it's, it's fairly basic, you know, we've got, uh, you know, we've got plants and animals and organisms and they're all different, but um, it turns out that biology is incredibly complex as well. So just in the human body alone, um, there are 30 trillion uh, different cells making up each one of your bodies. Um, and so that's more than all the stars in the Milky Way, more than, more, num, more than all the galaxies in the universe. And so biology, it turns out, is an incredibly complex system um, because in, within each one of these cells, there are tens of thousands of molecules that are interacting with each other and uh, producing other molecules and um, in, a, in a complex uh, feedback loops and systems. But again, it also, it, as well as this level of layer, uh, this degree of complexity that we've got with the, the numbers of cells in our bodies, um, we're also, it turns out humans are approximately equi mass uh, or, or equi um, numbers, I should say, sorry, um, with other organisms. So within your, your body, you have living uh, the same number of cells of other um, origins. And so, as Hugh point, uh, mentioned, there's a, a complex interaction here between your microbiome and your body itself. And of, of, you can see that this could then you know, have big impl implications for health. So how are we going to tackle this immensely um, uh, complex problem? We, we really want to be able to understand um, what makes you unique, um, but more importantly, uh, how we can use uh, the properties of your, your unique body and uh, your genome and your uh, different ohms uh, to classify and categorise you and how you will respond to different treatments and um, uh, benefit from different, uh, uh, for example, exercise uh, regimes. Right, so um, in terms... Uh, what, then what makes us different, right? So we've got, uh, we've got so many uh, trillions of cells inside us, um, but puzzling, puzzlingly, we have one genome, right? So within all those different cell types, there's only one genome. So, um, and, and we'll come back to that in a minute. So think about, um, we've got astrocytes here. These are cells in your brain. Um, we've got bones, uh, cells that make our bones. We've got uh, muscular cells, uh, liver cells, and even under the microscope, here's some fat cells. You can see that these look very, very different, but, diff but the same genome. Okay, so, um, so what's going on there? If we, if we zoom in on one cell and go to the nucleus, we see that the human genome has, uh, that there's 23 um, pairs of chromosomes. Um, and it turns out uh, we have 20,000 uh, genes in our genome. Okay, so um, and and this is this has really been um, the, this has been discovered as a result of the Human Genome Project, which you're all familiar with. Uh, so DNA was discovered in uh, in the 19, 1980s, late 1980s, 
Um, and in 19, in, sorry, in, in 1953, Watson and Crick discovered the, the uh, structure of uh, DNA. And since then, um, governments of the world united and decided, let's work out what the sequence of this uh, genome is. And this was the biggest, uh, the, the largest collaborative project that was initiated in science and still is. Um, the cost of this was around three billion uh, US dollars, uh, and it took 13 years to do. Um, from this at, this, at the initiation of this project, scientists around the world said, we predict there's going to be 100,000 different genes. That's, that's how many based on um, you know, their best estimates, that's what we, we think there should be. And it turns out there was 20,000, um, but Drosophila have 17,000. So we were way off, the, we thought we were going to be you know, incredibly complex at the genome level. This is, this is going to be great. And then things became a little bit more realistic. This is, you know, we're at 20,000. And that's, that's what the numbers are. Um, but it turns out that 40% um, of the protein coding regions within a genome are produce more than one protein product. And that's different to other organisms. It's, it's high, slightly higher. And they're also more trans, what's called transcription factors. And this enables uh, different combinations of proteins to be um, produced at any one time. And so, um, and so really what I want you to think, what I wanted you to get from this little story was that um, was, is actually to think about why this happened. So mankind decided uh, back here somewhere we're going to initiate this, this science project and we're going to try and understand what is this, you know, what is this sequence. Um, and in order to do that, techno technology had to be developed. Okay? So we, we didn't have the, the means to, to read the human genome at that time. Uh, so, so great efforts were invested in that and as I said it cost $3 billion to do. But, um, and you've, you may have heard of this uh, law in computing called Moore's Law. So this is basically a, a, not really a law, but it's an observation um, that was made that the, uh, the speed of computer processes would roughly double every two years. Okay? And this was not really a law, it was actually uh, instated um, in order to drive technological developments. And it's been one of the, the things that has led to us having you know, essentially what used to be considered a supercomputer in our pockets um, in such a rapid period of time. And this similar, this similar sort of goal in the biological sciences, in genome sequencing at least, uh, the, this, uh, this idea, the, the, this uh, drive to sequence genomes more quickly and more cheaply um, led to the development of many, many new technologies and subsequently drove down the costs of sequencing the genome to the point where now, today, uh, actually in just in March now, you can for a thousand dollars you can sequence uh, you, you can have your genome sequenced if you live in the U.S. Um, and so this is actually just a live web page, so you can you can go here and spit in a tube and submit your sample, and there you've got uh, for one thousand dollars what cost three billion dollars uh, a few not so long ago. Right, so um, we learned an awful lot from this, right? We learned that it wasn't 100,000 genes, it was 20,000 and an, an enormous degree of complexity. But we also learned that, um, that 
we've also come to realise that the level of regulation that we're expecting between different cells and different organisms, between humans and mice and fruit flies, is not solely at the genomics level. There's other levels of regulation beyond that. And uh, we can think of this in kind of the same way we think about um, making machines. So the, it's very helpful to think of um, the, the genome as, as kind of like a blueprint, I think, because um, you know, it contains all the basic instru instruction kit for creating, in this example, a car. And then, um, then if, if, but if we want to create this car, we don't just, you know, we, we start with a blueprint and then we make a, a 3D model, usually on a computer, but some, you know, we used to do this in clay of, uh, of the car itself. And then once the car has been made in clay, then we can go and actually manufacture it. So it turns out the cell uh, does the same thing. So the, the genome, our DNA, is like the blueprint, and then we have what's called mRNA, and that's, uh, I guess, we can think of this as like the next uh, step along in, in developing the actual car. And then, uh, and then the protein is like the, the physical model of the car itself. Um, and we can take this analogy a little bit further even because cars, you know, producing, uh, doing chemical reactions and producing things, so we turn petrol into carbon dioxide, and just the same way our bodies turned glucose into carbon dioxide and so on, um, we can have even these metabolites. And so they're also very interesting for us to, to measure because they tell us about the reactions that are going on within our bodies. So, um, so, so here we have genomics. This is uh, understanding the sequence, the, you know, the, the sequence and the, um, the blueprint of uh, our bodies, the proteins, the proteome, and the metabolome. And each of these things now we can measure. Um, I won't go into too much details, but at the Charles Perkins Center now we're using mass spectrometry um, based proteomics and metabolomics to measure these, the, the proteins that are transcribed uh, uh, using, uh, using mass spectrometry. And basically, we uh, inject the, the samples into the mass spectrometer, and we get these uh, MSMS sequences. Um, and this literally tells us the sequence of the protein, as opposed to the sequence of the DNA, if we were doing genomics. So this generates huge volumes of data, um, which we can then analyze. And ultimately, in the end, it tells us what are the proteins that are present in a sample, as opposed to what, is the, what are the genes that are present in somebody's genome. To give you an example of the huge degree of, um, you know, the, the difficulty that we have in um, just measuring these samples, there is, this is uh, taken from a, a sample of somebody's blood and just gives you a representation of the proteins that are found in, in a blood sample. And there's an over a billion-fold difference between the most abundant proteins and the least abundant proteins in somebody's blood sample here. But there are also very interesting proteins um, embedded here. So um, I don't expect you to be able to read all of these names, and it's not important. But um, you know, somewhere down the middle here, we have a C-reactive protein. And you may or may not have, had, have heard this being measured when you go to a, your GP. 
C-reactive protein just gives you a general is, is a general useful marker for inflammation, but we don't it, but it won't tell you whether it's an acute inflammatory process or a, a prolonged uh, chronic process. So that one protein there cannot distinguish between someone who has a, a bacterial or viral infection as opposed to uh, uh, Crohn's disease, for example. Whereas there are other proteins here in the plasma which combined with CRP then could distinguish those two features. And so measuring the, measuring the uh, entire uh, contents of or, or the majority of the proteins within a person's plasma samples can then be very useful diagnostic information to, uh, to tell uh, what's going on in that patient's body. So basically, um, to sum up, we, we, measure, we uh, have this workflow um, where we can take a very small volume of uh, a person's blood, we can um, go through a sample preparation here and measure it on the mass spectrometer, and we can then identify from different people what the constituent uh, proteins in their blood are. And then we can say, uh, use that information as diagnostic uh, markers to tell us whether, then, whether or not they're responding well to treatment or uh, to cat categorise people. So we could say uh, these people are particularly high risk of developing metabolic disease. Uh, these people are at lower risk and could transition into um, not at risk category uh, if they were given a specific treatment or um, exercise program, um, whereas these, these people here are at no risk at all. Oh, hi, everybody. Um, my name is Nick Glazer. I'm a professor of psychological medicine here at the University of Sydney, and um, you've heard about omics and proteomics and genomics and metabolomics and the machines that go bing um, has just been shown there um, and I exist in a world where you've got to take those things and together you then have to bring in human consciousness and willpower and emotions at the individual level which we can't necessarily see with those machines that we can't necessarily measure with our omics and then further still you have to place those into all of the social settings that we exist in at the moment, the educational settings, the cultural settings, the spiritual settings, the linguistic settings that we work in. And then not only that, you then have to think about how these things move across the lifespan. And this concept of mental capital, where from a governmental level, from, a, from an organisational level, people talk about how human well-being can be measured across the lifespan and the different factors that work prenatally from child to child and take a lifetime trajectory. So we have enormous complexity at a cellular level, a biome level, take that to the human level, many, many different approaches that we can take within incredibly complex setting. One option, with faced with all this complexity and trying to understand it, is to say, sod this, this is way too hard and go down the pub. Another option is to try and actually disentangle certain parts of it and look at what you can do. And one of the things that intrigues me, certainly within mental health, which is where I work, and I don't know whether you're aware of this, this is the spending of the Australian federal government on people with mental health problems. And I don't know if you're aware, but the Australian federal government spends more money actually paying people with mental health problems not to go to work than it does treating them, 
which for me sounds quite remarkable, really, and I think we should try and be increasing people's well-being, enhancing their welfare, and enabling people to live good and meaningful lives. I mean, doctors only do two things. I'm a doctor. They help you to live longer and live better while you're doing it. That's the only two things we do, and I tend to be in the, in the second one. And so this figure is quite staggering, the amount of money we spend that. That's real money. And I'm particularly interested in the young part of this. And the reason why is when one takes a trajectory, if you do not make the successful transition from education, and in our, econ our economies and our society, virtually everyone does go into education, if you don't make that transition from education into employment over the first decade of your late teens, early 20s, you are very, very unlikely ever to make it. You become the disenfranchised, you become the others, the people that you see walking around you in society. It's not a good place to be, and many of my patients occupy that. And many of these people from a policy level are called NEATs. Um, now, NEAT isn't just a NEAT term. It actually is an acronym, meaning not in employment, education and training. And this is what the OECD and various governmental levels talk about when they talk about these disenfranchised young people who really don't have a particular role. And they talk about these things, these people who have the core need, people who are out of education, they're out of training, they're not working, they have very little to do. Then there are the cyclical ones who maybe move in and out, and a quarter of Australian jobs now are temporary, impermanent jobs with periods of unemployment in between, people moving in and out of education. And of course, some people choose to be in that. So people take gap years and things like that. But I'm really interested in this core group of people here. And Australian youth unemployment is about 12% at the moment. Um, it was about 8% a number of years ago. It's gone down ever so slightly. Australia is doing quite well. I mean, you look at countries like Greece and Spain, where youth unemployment is about 50%. Australia is doing quite well. But what we're at risk of with these high levels is actually creating a cohort of disenfranchised young people. And you see what goes on in um, North Africa and various areas like that. And this is disenfranchised young people with time on their hands and the social problems that that causes. So from a policy level perspective, what do we know? Well, we take routine data generally, and we know such things as it's associated with socioeconomic status, ethnicity and immigration backgrounds, which change from country to country. Actually, immigrants in Australia tend to outperform white Australian-born people on many metrics, which is very different than in Europe, where actually people from immigra immigrants actually underperform the, um, the local people. Parental factors, school, living arrangements. And what's interesting for me is we know virtually nothing about the impact of health, and in particularly um, mental health problems and those other things that begin to emerge during adolescence on um, the old likelihood of being neat, or what, how you actually become enfranchised or disenfranchised. And I don't know if many of you are aware, but there is this enormous explosion of youth mental health services in Australia, um, characterised by the Headspace services. Um, you as taxpayers have paid nearly a billion dollars for Headspace so far, certainly in the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for treating young people who can access early services for primary mental health care problems and a range of other problems, sexual health and other primary uh, care, including some drug and alcohol. And if we take those young people, and this is taking some of our data based at the Headspace services here in Sydney, when we look at the NEAT rates, we find that actually we get about 30% of the young people who walk through our doors 
are already neat. They are already disenfranchised by the time they come and see us. Some of those may be temporary, but actually one in ten of them remain chronically disenfranchised even over the time they are seeing us. Which is So we are seeing neat rates three times that in the general Australian population. So those young people with mental health problems very highly likely to be disenfranchised. And that could be a chicken or egg thing. You know, if you're out of education, employment, you haven't got very much money, there's a range of other things you don't do. It's, for many of those people, that can cause problems. But for many of these things, they are a vicious cycle that it's hard to get out of. And understanding what goes on in, in young people and disengagement, what we're faced with is we have information on lots of people in routine data sets, but very little pieces of information on those people. So we have small bits of information on lots and lots of people. And then when we actually take the data sets that I often work in, which is where we have data on small numbers of people, and by small I mean hundreds and hundreds of people, but that's still small numbers of people, where we understand them in great complexity, um, on great detail. And when we looked at our headspace people, we found that those people who are disenfranchised, they were, they were more likely to be depressed, but not anxious. But unsurprisingly, they had greater economic hardship. They had poor occupational functioning. They were later stages of illness. But then other things begin to come in. Unsurprisingly, criminal charges begin to come in. Um, higher cannabis use, so drug and alcohol use becomes in. Um, interestingly, in, in our group of people, several of the things that we did think would be associated, so how far you got in the education system, did not appear to be protective against becoming disenfranchised. Um, so that's interesting. The immigration history didn't. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander status did not appear to influence your, your, your status in the group of people that we looked at. Um, and when we looked at this over a year, really what this is showing us is that these top two lines here, these are the people who are neat at the start, at the start of it, or who are depressed early on, and the changes of their depression over the year that they were within the headspace services. And those people who actually remained chronically depressed were very, very likely to stay out of the workforce, not in training, and remain disenfranchised. Um, and amongst those people who actually got better, they became less and less disenfranchised. We're now increasingly interested in looking at things like cognitive function. You, this is the, the kind of complex graphs that we look at taking some of our data and this is a, a path analysis taking, this is, these are a range of cognitive tests on the left-hand side. We look at depression and functioning. And we draw these path analyses in our approaches to try and identify if we want to actually have an effect within our clinical services on getting people back into the workforce, back in training, which areas should we focus on. Um, and then we have to think about where people are on the trajectory. Are they actually of school age? Are they actually of college age? Have they left college? Where do they live? Do they live in a place where they can access college services? Because individuals live in this middle of this sort of chrono system. Of an individual brings their own, their genes, their biomes, everything else you've heard of. But they actually exist in a meso system, consisting of their family, the health services, their spiritual groups around them, their peers, particularly in the group we work in. Peers are so, so important. And then there's a whole set of governmental services around them that have a different perspective. And then finally, you've got to bring in the perspective of where people are on their life trajectory. So it's the Krona system is incredibly complex, and we're just looking at a small part of it. And being a sort of bear of little brain, you know, I can get as far as sort of Winnie the Pooh metaphors and also Rudyard Kipling. And um, when we're trying to understand what we have to do 
in developing our clinical services or public policy responses. I'm reminded of sort of Rudyard Kipling's story about an elephant, of the, uh, the blind, uh, six blind men in an elephant, uh, in a cave with an elephant, trying to work out what on earth the animal is. And the idea that this kind of thing, this sort of this disenfranchised, neat young people, and I'm sitting here over here going, well, I, 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 I can measure these bits. I'm really good at understanding drug and alcohol abuse, about understanding decision-making, about understanding symptoms. But I really know very little, for instance, about up here, the ears, the idea of what's going on in the educational system and picking apart where the justice system fits in and what the educational services and vocational services are doing. And so if we want to understand these complex issues and the issues that are increasingly going to challenge our society... And I would suggest that a, a whole cohort of disenfranchised y young people out there, increasing the have-nots in our society, is one of those things we should want to tackle. Then we need to think about the complexity of the system and begin to actually bring in the data of, and try and identify the data that can help us to understand where we need to tackle things a little bit better, where we should focus our money, where we should focus your billion dollars in trying to prevent these things. And this is where my colleagues like Sally come into the equation. So thank you. Well, thanks, Nick. Um, I'm Sally Cripps. I'm at the uh, Professor of Stats at the Centre of Data Science, and I've been working with Nick for a while on, on this issue. So, so just taking Nick's metaphor and running with this, so let's imagine that we do know that this elephant is in fact disenfranchised use. And then the question is, how does data science help us in this issue? Um, so is it, is it to do with age? Is it to do with drug use? Is it education? Is it criminality? Is it family? And when we think about this, we think, so if I had data on all these things, I, mean, I could maybe answer that question. And what I want to talk about today is just how difficult that question actually is to answer, even with what we think of as relatively large amounts of data. So, for example, when I want to collect data on these attributes, I have to make decisions about what it is I'm going to measure. So, for example, is it marijuana? Is it alcohol? Is it hard drugs? With education, is it the childhood experience? Is it the ultimate... Um, degree they achieved with crime, is it, is it, is it uh, violent crime, is it, is it mental health? And with mental health it's another issue altogether because the very complex medical conditions actually don't have any definitive tests. So actually measuring what we mean by mental health is a project all in and of itself without then relating it to disenfranchised youth. So it is not an easy problem and it's made a lot harder, ironically, by the ease of data capture. You may think that with all the data that we have available, this should be a very straightforward problem of going out and collecting this data and figuring out which of the factors are most important. We have information available to us on pretty much a lot of aspects of your behaviours readily available to us. And I've just had a few slides come in there showing the sort of data that we could readily pick up on all these people. Now, the question is, though, we've got so many factors that we could possibly use, but we've got very few people on the observation of interest. So, for example, when the people walk through Nick's door in the headspace, they, we may have hundreds of people, and yet for each individual, we could have easily 100, 1,000, or if we think about uh, genomic data, tens of thousands of factors for each individual. So actually, our problem is not 
a big data problem. Our problem is a small data problem. We have huge amounts of data available in terms of factors that may be affecting the disenfranchised youth. We have very few observations on actual disenfranchised youth. And we call this a small n, large p problem. And it's a, it's a difficult problem when you want to make a meaningful statistical inference about what, what it is that's, that's occurring. In addition to having loads of all these factors, we have the a challenge that all these factors are highly related. And what I've got up there is a correlation matrix. Basically, it measures the dependency of one variable with another. Uh, so things that are deep red have a high correlation, positive correlation with each other. Things that are blue have a negative correlation with each other. And things that are pale uh, are, are not highly dependent on each other. And what that shows, for example, is that psychological variables are highly correlated with other psychological variables. If you score high on depression score, you're probably likely to score high on an anxiety score. They're negatively correlated with behavioural scores and positive correlated with economic. So we've got a lot of variables, some of them telling us exactly the same thing, and we have to figure out which combination of those variables, if there is a single combination of variables, that best explains a very complex phenomenon such as disengaged youth. Now we've heard a lot about large. So we heard that there was um, 30 trillion, is it, Sean? 30 trillion cell cells? Yep. So uh, if we have, for example, 500 factors that we need, that we can measure, so 500 things we can measure about you on each person, and we want to know which combination of those factors best explains. There are, in fact, more combinations of those factors, which I'm going to call a model from now on, more combination of those factors than there are atoms in the universe. Not stars in the galaxies, but atoms in the universe. So that is a very tricky problem to figure out which combination is the best out of such a large number. Now, if we then cut it down to 50, you might think it becomes manageable. It does become more manageable. We're now dealing with the number of atoms on Earth. So we have models space that is the, equal to the number of atoms on Earth. For each one of those model spaces, we then have a high dimensional parameter vector. So we heard Dietmar talk about high dimensional uh, problems. So for each one of these trillions upon trillions of models, we have a high dimensional parameter vector. So this is our challenge as a data scientist, as a statistician, in dealing with what probably looks to a lot of people like a relatively straightforward problem. Um, then we come to how do we visualise it? How do we convey it? This is what's called is a network map. Uh, variables that are towards the middle are things that are connected to other variables and are also likely to be related to whether a person or not is disengaged. So that's one way that we may visualise it. And you can see the big predictors are, in fact, things like mental health, whether you're male or female. Uh, and, and I like this one because actually an overprotective mother is a big predictor of, uh, of, of a disengaged youth. So I show that to my children. <laughs> so. Um, Okay, so let's concentrate now on we've just one model. If we know the model and if we know the parameter vector, we still have a difficult problem because we've got this highly nonlinear, this is supposed to be a highly nonlinear surface here. I've got age along this axis here, I've got a depression score here, and I've got the probability that you're going to be sort of disengaged along here. 
Uh, and so you can see it's, it's, it's highly nonlinear. This peak, for example, may correspond to a depressed male who's 25 with a criminal record. Now that's for, as I said, one model and one parameter vector. What our data scientists do is have to figure out, they have to actually average over all possible models and all possible uh, parameter vectors. So they have to construct an algorithm that initially explores this very high dimensional space and do that for each one of these trillions of models. That's a very difficult task to do, and we have to come up with smart ways of getting an algorithm which, do that, which does that. And so we've got techniques, uh, Markov Chain Monte Carlo being a, among a, uh, some of the, the, the algorithms that we use, but it's a very difficult challenge, and we're working on it at the moment with the um, postdocs at the, at the Data Science Centre. So what, what, what did we find after all this? Well, you know, basically, uh, depression is, is one of the biggest predictors of whether somebody's disengaged. And as Nick said, it is actually an open question as to whether or not which came first, and that's something that we're looking at now. The, um, the size of the circle indicates how likely this particular combination of variables is to be a good candidate model. So this is another combination of variables. So there were, when we had, we, initially when we started this work, we actually couldn't get the algorithm to work for, for more than about 50 variables. Uh, so, and these were our top sort of combinations of variables. Once you go for, then we, then we made, allowed more variables, I think up to about 500 variables now. And you can see that the age, gender and depression come up again and again and again, but other more personal factors come up as part of it. And as it's cycling through this, the size of the font indicates how particularly likely that combination of factors were. And you see common themes coming through. So these were some of the results. And one of the most um, useful results from a policy point of view, I suppose, that we found was that the factors or the combinations of models that predict onset are quite different from the combination of models that, that predict persistence of disengagement. So this is important, for example, whether so if you work for government, you may have different levers to pull on a much more uh, global level than if you work individually and you're counselling people. So, so basically, personal factors and exercise are the best predictors of whether you will initially uh, become into one of these categories. Then economic variables come into play when, it, when you look at how likely am I to stay in this disenfranchised group. So, thank you. So I want to move on now to the uh, question part of it, and I invite the scientists and data scientists to sit in the uh, front line here, if you can do that. Thank you. You see how enthusiastic they are. <laughs> uh, and I'd like to basically, we've got 25 minutes, and I'd like to open it up for questions. And I might actually get the ball rolling myself in the first instance, and, uh, and perhaps start with Nick, as you're at that end. And uh, get you to say less than one minute about where you think maybe five years from now, what data could really do to change the field that you're in, or data science could do to change the field you're in. In less than a minute, my God. Um, yep. Okay. Hard so, task for an, an academic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, where I would sit is I would see us being able to 
look at the trajectories of the development of mental health problems and actually understanding the intergenerational transmission of these using some of the omics issues and how the different, many of the different factors lead to the development of them and the differential way that these factors lead to the development of mental health conditions over a lifetime. So different factors playing a role in the development of different mental health problems in childhood and in youth and in middle age and later onset. Okay, good. Also, sorry, I'm using the opportunity here to make sure people are thinking of questions so that we're ready when we, when we get to it. Sorry. Right, so in the biological sciences, we, uh, I explained how we have seen a huge explosion in ge uh, genomic sequencing technologies, which has uh, driven down the cost of sequencing genomes. I expect in the next five to 10 years to see the same. Um, we already are seeing the same uh, sort of trend happening in proteomics, um, that is sequencing of proteins, and metabolomics. And so we will see exactly the same um, trend going on there with um, the ability to, and, and I hope, what I hope is that that really then turns this from being, a, um, as was described by a couple of the other speakers and Hugh, as being a small n, large p problem, as in a small data problem where we don't have enough data um, to, to investigate these very complex problems to, ones where, to a situation where we do have enough data. So I hope that the technology continues to drive these, um, the, the generation of data in, a, in, a, in this accelerating okay. manner. Sally? Okay, well, I think one of the, the biggest challenges for data science in the future is to um, yeah. Go for it. Okay, make, make meaningful inference around phenomenon for, of which the complexity is always going to be larger than any data that you can gather. So there are some problems, mental health is one of them, uh, that, that there are never going to be enough data that you can get to actually uh, match the complexity. And our challenge is how do we build models? To, to do that, and I, I'm not sure that more data is necessarily uh, the, the way to go. I actually think that the only way that we can do it, data itself will never be enough. We need to work with people, uh, as, a, as I said, we need to work with people from the domain areas uh, to, in order to understand the system and bring, build constraints into it uh, so that there's going to be no magically finding in the needle in the haystack just by data mining. It's going to become as a collaboration of the two groups. Dietmar? Well, we heard about the trajectory of um, the um, lives of humans before. Um, being a geologist, I'm more concerned with the trajectory of the Earth <laughs> as a whole. <laughs> um, and now, uh, as most of you or all of you are aware, the, the Earth is changing quite rapidly at the moment. And uh, we're trying to figure out how the Earth will change in the long run. And uh, the Earth is a very complex system, so this is quite difficult. The best bet we have to, uh, to learn something more about that is, in fact, the geological past. And uh, so, in my view, our biggest challenge is to actually use the enormous multitude of data that geologists have and will be collecting uh, in, in, in the future uh, on the geological past to, to try to take a guess at uh, how the Earth might be evolving in the future. It's interesting to reflect on uh, that. One minute was the word. Go oh, for it. But, but, <laughs> Uh, okay, sorry, you don't mind. That's a good summary. So I think we'll go to questions. You have your hand up. So if you could wait for the microphone, that would be helpful. Hello. Yes, my name is Gerard Hosier. Um, um, I'm sort of very concerned about the moral responsibility um, and the ethics of actually having very prejudicial uh, data um, and the collection of that data, 
um, from a wide selection of public. Now, you didn't say where it came from, and you said, you didn't say, it, most probably you'll say, oh, it was anonymized. But with big data and Moore's curve, I mean, we're just at the infancy. I mean, you can buy big data decoding packages to use in your bedroom. Um, so um, the, the problem is uh, we can all be deconstructed to the nth point. I mean, would any of you be really happy having your profiles analyzed and deconstructed by the equivalent of some street corner hustler? Because um, the data, once it's out there... Maybe, it's maybe we could um, we get the point. Why don't we look at some answers here very briefly? So I might just add a little piece. We have, a very, we have an important part of what we do in the Data Science Center, which is around how we encrypt and how we manage privacy in data and things like that. And of course, it is important in health and mental health and things like that. It's obviously less important in geology uh, and a lot of other areas. But yeah, because there's the outcomes like Ashley Madison and AOL. I, I appreciate that. So I'd like some of the comments, I guess, from, from uh, Nick here. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a really important point that society needs to tackle. And it's interesting how societies have very, very different views about how much privacy is important. I work a lot with some of the big Scandinavian data sets that are able to link people's education, their benefits, their health, their um, various other aspects of the government with a unique identifier that identifies that exact individual. Now, the data is anonymized. I don't know if you're aware, in Norway, you can go on five times a year and find out how much one of your neighbours is worth, how much money they are worth from the data that is available publicly. So they have decided as a society what level of privacy is acceptable for a society. And that will change from society to society, depending on how much trust we have. So I don't think there's one-size-fits-all answer to that. And it's something that we as a society, and this society, need to take quite seriously and have probably different views on for different purposes. Anybody else? Dietmar? No? I have some strong views also, I think, that say uh, privacy in the future is very much going to be a part of an individual. You know, we work on algorithms in which people will end up owning their data, not companies, and not even the health records people. People around the table know this. Uh, where people keep it, it's encrypted, and they never let go of the data. In fact, you send the analytics to the people to get it processed. So I think there are different futures that are imaginable in which, uh, in fact, data is not held by a big company in, the, in, the, in, in that sort of sense at all. So, and those are things that we will try and pursue as well. So are there any other questions? So, well, there's one right next to you, actually. Make it quick. <laughs> Hi, um, my name is Bianca and I work for what could kind of be considered the evil side of this. I'm in market research and yeah. <laughs> um, my question is partially about the collaboration. I mean, obviously we collect so much data about everything that's going on um, from so many companies and so many industries. Is that not something in the future that could kind of be combined for the advertising and the marketing <laughs> side? I know, it's a wishful idea. But to, you know, to collaborate with that information, but also the biological information in return to help with their diagnostics and predicting things as well. So I'll start and say very, very carefully here, you know, um, the one word you kind of never heard in this lecture, interestingly, was big data. Did yes. you notice that? Yes. Okay, because we're very, very, we're very, very careful about it in the sense that most interesting problems that you actually want to solve in the future have nothing to do with marketing. 
You know, they're really to do with science discovery and these sorts of things. And in fact, they're not big data problems. Uh, and I think, you know, many people have sort of commented on that. And perhaps yeah. I'll open it up here. Yeah. yeah, so, um, so there's a, that's this um, interesting, I think, piece of misinformation out there that if we only had all the data, we'd suddenly find the answer. And I, I think I hope what I tried to get across is even if when you, you do have just 50 factors, the answer is not obvious. It's very sophisticated algorithms that we really need to do. And so my belief mm. is that you can do all the linking and combining with that, that may be really useful, may not be, but unless we actually have a particular research question that we want to answer and understand what that research question is, unless we bring prior information from the domain that maybe that research question relates to, we really don't have a hope in searching what I referred to as that high dimensional space. So this idea of diving into data mining and just coming up with the answers of the world, I don't think is going to happen. Yeah. Yep. I've heard. Hi, um, my name's Samuel Marks. I'm doing my uh, PhD in medicine. I was very excited by uh, Professor Muller's uh, talk, um, especially on the multidisciplinary side. Um, so geophysics is great. You speak to a geologist about geophysics and they're like, what's going on? Um, I've been applying geophysics and mechatronics to other areas like civil engineering. And just the, the sheer amount of st stuff you need to go through for them to figure out that you've got the right answer even though the maths proves it. Um, any advice for bringing multidisciplinary um, ideas into other fields that don't, aren't used to it? Well, I think that, if I might just start here, is indeed what the Centre for Translational Data Science is trying to do. You see here people from geology, from metabolism, from mental health, uh, and these sorts of areas, and indeed across the entire university. But I'm going to let Dietmar, Dietmar I've worked with for a number of years, and you can kind of sort of explain how it worked. Yeah, I mean, that, and that, that's been the key for us, right? Uh, so how, how do you... I mean, oftentimes, uh, new technologies get developed in, in, in a certain areas. Take, for example, a huge area of robotics, right? So there's a lot of machine learning te techniques that have been uh, developed there to, to teach uh, robots to, to do certain things. It turns out that some of those techniques are useful for geologists to, to, uh, to understand and analyze their data, right? And so that's a connection that, that we have been able to make by working with, uh, with, with Hugh and, and, and people he taught. And so, so yeah, I, I think that's absolutely a key for, for uh, people from very different disciplines uh, to come together and learn from each other. And, and Nick, uh, you, you're relatively new to engaging with uh, data science. Certainly this aspect of it. Um, I think the key thing that we've, I've, we've probably learned is the idea that Data science isn't just the application of a load of stats to a problem. And that actually, if we really want to understand something, we need to work out ways of incorporating knowledge and prior knowledge, what the Bayesians call priors, into the modeling because there's so much model space. And so that knowledge isn't necessarily just expert knowledge. So in my particular area, we can actually evaluate that we can look at the sensitivity of these models to look to knowledge from clinicians, from carers, from different stakeholders. And actually once people see that actually their input can actually, can meaningfully change the way that models are evaluated and understanding the data science, that's where I think that's yeah. for me where I see uh, the value in the collaboration. It's a long-term change too. I mean, the university is considering, for example, introducing what we're talking about as a freshman data science course, which means that every undergraduate in this university will be required to do a course in their first year in data science, even if you're doing law, law or uh, English or anything like that. 
because to be honest, data science impacts just everything these days. But that's a long haul process. Uh, yes, yesterday I narrowly missed witnessing a young man, probably uh, depressed and disengaged, jump in front of a train and uh, at St. Mary Station. I understand that this is a huge problem, that um, maybe as many as 100 do this, and I'm wondering what are the trajectories for this? Are the, These men are invisible, it's never reported. I understand the reason why it's not reported, um, because supposedly it will increase um, the statistics if it is. But I'm wondering what are the programs, what is being done, and okay. what are the studies? It's a huge problem that's buried. Nick? Um, I, as I pointed out, you know, there's a probably virtually multi-billion dollar program in, in youth mental health at the moment. There is a very large program now, certainly in New, New South Wales, running out of the uh, Black Dog Institute um, with a large philanthropic foundation and the Centre of Research into Suicide Prevention. Uh, they're looking at going into schools. There are lots and lots and lots of work going into suicide prevention, individual level, at school and educational level, and at the macro level. You know, we know one of the things, if you want to reduce suicide, you put up fences and video cameras around the gap, for instance. You know, we, well, you have to think about these at multiple levels because they're complex, complex solutions. And sometimes your simple solution moves a problem elsewhere. As well, and that's where I'd be understanding these the different parts of my heifer try and come in to try and work out if we do something on the tail, what's the impact of that on the on the trunk, for instance. So there's a lot of work going on in this area. Um, to be honest, you know, the youth suicide rate actually isn't going up, but it's still high. Suicide is still the biggest cause of death of young adults in this country, and for me, that's just a ridiculous statistic. Um, hi. Uh, my question is to Professor Glozier. Hi. Um, just, uh, You're a popular you, guy, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned in one of your slides um, how one's level of educational attainment, uh, interestingly, uh, doesn't improve neat outcomes. Um, is, that, is that something that you mentioned? So, so I, I think what, what Nick did was present the, the results of his findings, which were using traditional statistical mm. techniques. So, for those of you maybe in the audience, you may be familiar with things like, you know, multinomial logistic regression or logistic regression, where you do sort of variable selection based on, you know, p-values and test statistics, and and that would sort of be the traditional way of of doing it. And they were the results that Nick found. What what we found. However, we, we looked at it differently. We didn't have a particular, you come up in that, in Nick's world or that old world, you come up with one model, right? So what we did was say, well, we made the model itself a random variable. So what is the right model? And actually when you start to expand it to look at different models and different combinations, you, you, we actually did find that education uh, attainment was one of the predictors. And that was one of the things that was floating around on one of those slides mm. I think yeah. I had. And then again, one can test that by looking, if we say actually we can, uh, you know, because everyone, everyone who looks at that model go, well, that's just a bit daft that education doesn't come out. Surely education actually improves your chances in life. And so the advantage of taking this new approach is we can actually build those in, into the model. We can take that expert knowledge, that lived knowledge, 
because the one model that came out from our particular approach doesn't necessarily make sense. Yep. Yep. Well, you know what they say, there's lies, damn lies, statistics and data science. 40% yeah, of statistics are made up, <laughs> or maybe it's 30%. <laughs> um, hello, my name is Pablo. I'm actually not sure how to articulate the question, but do you think that we may reach a tipping point with quantum computing and artificial intelligence anytime soon? And uh, I don't know, perhaps it's not just about the amount of data analyzed, but also the intelligence behind it as well that, you know, do you, have, do you have any ideas around that, I suppose? That's the question. Yeah, I have, I have some strong opinions, but that's okay, um, on this too. Uh, uh, the first thing to say is I, when I first started, when I was a young person and I first started in AI, I remember reading one of the first books that was ever published by a very famous guy. And in the beginning, it had a definition of artificial intelligence. It said, artificial intelligence is anything we currently don't know how to do. When we know how to do it, it's called an algorithm. And I agree with that. We really don't know. Uh, we are, haven't even started on the journey of trying to make computers intelligent at all. We can't even actually answer the question, what is intelligence, let alone how to make a computer intelligent. This idea that we're heading towards a singularity is utter nonsense. Um, uh, quantum computing, yes, look, it'll speed some things up, but people need to remember it is, a, it is a parallel machine. It makes things faster in parallel. The problems like Sally's talking about here, uh, quantum computing will have no impact on at all. Uh, it's not capable of scaling exponentially, it scales in parallel. Uh, and so there are some fundamental issues still to go. You need to be smart about data. You need to be smart about algorithms, and we will continue to need to do that. And don't worry, robots aren't about to take over the world. <laughs> uh, um, Sally, um, oh, thank you. My name's Robin Cox. Um, I'm in education. And I think I understood, Sally, at the end, you said the most important part now is we get people who understand the field to work with the people yeah. who understand the, yeah. the data. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really wonderful. Um, the thing that worries me and keeps me awake at night, and I think I've just coined something, is um, might be something called an amateur data scientist. Somebody who thinks they've got a bit of an edge on the data, and it's rife in my sector at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I worry about that amateur... You know, what is it... Um, kind amateurism or something like that. I don't know if anybody wants to. I'm, I'm sure um, Hugh's got I know, I'm going to start with Sally, though, I think. Look, I think... Um, oh, I don't know where to start with that one. Yes, I think it can be an issue. I think actually being an amateur data scientist is not a bad thing at all. I, I think, though, there's an expression about, you know, it's a little bit of what you know is perhaps not, not such a... This could be a dangerous place. Um, but to the extent that being an amateur data scientist is at least a step in the direction that you may learn more about what you're doing, I think that's a really good thing. I think it's a, there's a terrible um, trap, though, in just having these um, pull-down boxes and menus that you, know, that, that you can do things where you don't really understand or the assumptions that went into the algorithm that went into the mathematics, and you can get very um, erroneous answers or come out with conclusions which are not helpful at all, um, basically because the, you haven't understood uh, the, the process of it. This is not to say that everybody needs to be a, a really top data scientist, but I do think that there's a benefit of the collaboration between the people who actually do the maths and the people who are actually working on the problem. And it flows both ways, not just in terms of us, you understanding, or me understanding, but in terms of actually what I've learnt working with Nick is we've come out with a whole bunch of new algorithms 
which are new, new advances in mathematical sciences in response to a practical problem and that we can now generalise to other particular areas which we are currently doing. Yep, look, I, I think I'll also say that um, at least people are using data now, which and they used to just do it on, in, you know, on what they thought, thought, in, thought in advance. So I think that's a step in the right direction. I often tell people perhaps the biggest step is simply liberating the data, making sure that the real data is actually available to everyone making the decision. Uh, and that itself is a, is a big change, rather than selectively picking different pieces of data. And maybe once we get our freshman data science course, we're going to graduate everybody, including teachers, who actually do have a smattering of data science. Yeah. Sorry, please. You hear that? Yep. Um, I'm interested in the uh, historical side of, the, uh, of this disenfranchisement. I don't recall seeing much of this in the past. I'm a doctor, and I see a fair bit now. I mean, I'm Oddly enough, in a medical legal capacity, people that don't work, don't want to work, can't work. But uh, I'm sort of curious as to whether there's been a swelling in the numbers as the years go by, uh, which is something you probably haven't been able to analyse. But if there, if there is such a swelling, what's the difference between now and, say, 20 or 30 years ago? And Sally, if this is the case, you may be able to reduce the number of your variables to something more practical. Nick? The, if you look at the youth unemployment stats in Australia, um, yeah, they were considerably higher in 1990, you know, during, the, um, uh, during the session in 1990. So in terms of the proportion of people who are disenfranchised, that, there is a cyclical nature to that, which is dependent upon economic variables. Um, as you're obviously aware, there's been a huge explosion in the number of people attending um, pro um, higher education now. So that has removed a lot of those people from, from potentially entering into not being in work because they're now in university or they're at now in colleges as well. So what the point I was trying to get across is that actually this problem isn't an individual problem or a family problem or a societal problem. It's a, it is an issue that we need to understand at all those different levels and take a temporal view, exactly like you've said, both the trajectories of the individual and the trajectories within society. Mm. Yeah, and then the second part of your question, which is... Microphone. Which is that, uh, you know, can, can we add information by understanding the temporal aspect of it, which I understood to be the, your question? Yep. Can we reduce, can we have more understanding of the phenomenon by rather than looking at a particular point in time, looking at how it's evolved over time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that was the question. So we can reduce the factors. Well, I yep. thought that was the... Yeah. Yes, go for it. Yeah, yeah. Assume that and, was and correct. I think that, that is, um, I think that that's a very good observation and that, you know, using uh, the, the temporal patterns can help reduce the... Um, uh, our, our uncertainty, but at the same time, what we're doing is we're, we're um, have inventing technologies that are increasing our, our volume of data. For example, maybe the genome sequence has got something to do with brain functioning, and maybe brain functioning then turns out to be mental health. And so each genome is 10,000 observations. When we have a look at an fMRI scan, that's millions of observations of which part of the fMRI scan is going to be important. So while at the same time we try to rein back all these variables at the same time we're having a lot of technology which is increasing the data which I think is actually a real challenge and I think it's only going to be working with uh, uh, professionals in the area such as yourself that we're going to sort of collectively solve these problems. Yeah. 
I'll add just one more comment that I remember Stephen Pinker's book, right, about violence, mm. uh, that shows fairly unequivocally that violence has reduced drastically, and yet we all think we live in a violent time, but it's nothing like what it was even in the recent past, which I think is interesting. So I have one more question we have. Um, general question to the panel. Um, I work in the Department of Finance and Innovation, and we've been basically given our agenda for the next two years, and it's seven dot points of data. What's missing for the people who are not part of the number crunching is the role of the narrative. Yeah. So where does the narrative come in? And Nick had touched on this briefly about a problem having many dimensions and the fact that insights come from more than just the experts. So where do you put in the narrative? Do you infer a narrative and put it at the beginning of the process or do you let the data drive you towards the narrative? Because in terms of abstract problem solving, that's mainly where those of us who work, for example, I work in the community engagement space, but I need mm. to, to convert data into something meaningful. Yeah. I might actually get Sally to answer this first because it's something that we've been discussing quite a lot in the centre in terms of things like visualisation and yeah. so I, prior elicitation and so on. On the, the, the narrative, I actually think that one of our biggest challenges is... So I, I do think that the data should tell the narrative... I, I think very much so, that, so that the, the story unfolds as the data unfolds. Uh, and um, the, the way in which we communicate the narrative is very much a visual one. I like the fact that DeepMa actually used data science to validate data science. So you use data science, if I'm right, to, to say that stories that had pictures were, were more sought after and more used. So it's a very important part of what we do. And it's a very um, underused part of what we do. And part of the Translational Data Science Centre, we've got a whole data visualisation centre which is, is geared towards that. So, so yeah, I think... Um, I don't know if that really answers your question. But. Nick? I'll give Nick thinking about it. <laughs> well, I thought, you, I thought it already answered your question. Where the, I mean, the narrative that we're actually playing out is one where it's an iterative narrative. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think the idea that you say, does it come at the beginning when you put it in at the beginning, or does it emerge from the data, is a simplistic view. Um, and that really, it is an iterative process. And so, you know, I put in some input, Sammy comes back and says, this is what the clever people have found. Um, and then we look at actually changing the priors a little bit again. So... I might leap in at that point yeah. as well. I mean, because I've done quite a bit with the state government here. I mean, uh, in areas like, believe it or not, geology and water policy, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of it is trying to get government themselves to understand things like, actually, even though you've got data, there's never one answer, right? There are many answers that explain the data that you have. And this underpins the small data argument. So if I could just pick an anecdote out of the groundwater debate in, 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 in the state the government would, would typically set up a contract that says, tell me what the water looks like to within 90% accuracy. That's actually a physical impossibility to do that. And yet people will come back and say, here is the answer, it's 90% bright. Uh, and what does that actually mean? And when you go and look at it, you discover that there's so little data and so much uncertainty that you cannot say anything at all about what the water is. But how do you convey that narrative and that decision-making process to people who need to make decisions based on 
that, you know, that limited model, all that ambiguity and everything else. And for me, that's the narrative, right? Even with the models that you heard about here in the, in the say, the, the, the mental health space, all right? Uh, it's such a huge space, you can almost say that every, almost every model explains the data. So what you need to do is to be clever by working with someone like Nick to say which bits of those models are likely to be right, which ones of those explain certain things and so on, and that's where the people come in. There is no automated way of thinking of data for these sorts of problems at all. Sometimes okay. the narrative can be phenomenally strong and override yeah. the data. Um, we've done a lot of work and we're looking at sort of time trends in sleep in human societies. And there is a very, very strongly held view in society that we are sleeping less than we used to <laughs> and that those terrible screens are causing this um, loss of sleep in society and we are suffering as a result. There is no data that consistently backs that up. There is as much data to show that we are in fact sleeping longer than we used to than there is that we, we are sleeping less than we used to. And I go and present all these data and we've done all the analyses at conferences around the world to sleep with the experts, etc. And they say, yeah, but we're sleeping less. But that's not what the data shows. And so <laughs> narratives can take a phenomenal hold and actually people's ability to dismiss the data is quite astonishing at times. Well, on the subject of sleep, I think we're going to draw to a close there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick.